Hello, you're listening to Clinical Conversations from NEJM Group. This time we have a discussion about an issue of informed consent. The circumstances declaring a patient dead by neurologic criteria. And the question is, should informed consent be obtained before apnea testing? The question was debated by a clinician and a law professor in the May issue of CHEST. And that caught the eye of NEJM Journal Watch Editor-in-Chief Alan Brett, who thought it would be good for our audience to hear another discussion of the issue. And so we've recruited two discussants for whom the question is anything but theoretical. Dr. Patricia Critic practices critical care medicine at the University of Washington Medical Center, where she is a professor of medicine. Dr. Robert Trug directs the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical School, where he is a senior associate in critical care medicine. I want to welcome you and thank you both for agreeing to this discussion, which I'm looking forward to. And with that, I'll hand off to Trish Critic. Joe, thanks so much for the invitation to be here, the opportunity to have this conversation with Bob. Bob, as Joe said, there was an interesting pro-con debate in chess between Thaddeus Pope and Alan Schumann, with Alan Schumann really taking the perspective that there's inherent risk in apnea testing and, and inaccuracies in apnea testing. And so we should we absolutely need to ask for consent before we would do that. And, and Thaddeus really kind of coming back to the Uniform Determination of Death Act and saying, this is one of the things where we don't need to ask for consent. And they went back and forth about, about that in their kind of pro-con debate. As I read it, I felt like the bigger question that I was asking myself as I listened to them is like, do we actually need consent in general for determining death by neurologic criteria or not? And I would say I fall on the side of, no, we don't need to do that. And, and that's not to say that we don't want to partner with families or give families some time to grieve and process something that can be sudden and, and dramatic, and that we often make accommodations after the declaration of death, but that doing that testing, in my mind, doesn't require consent. And, and I, that's where I came back to, though actually really the debate was about, do you need it for apnea testing? So I'm curious about your thoughts about the apnea testing part of it, and then we can kind of continue our conversation. Yeah, thanks, Trish. I, I think there's a, a couple of different levels at which we can look at this. So yeah. let me just say a word about the question on apnea testing. And I think one view, which is uh, the one that you're articulating, is that as physicians, one of the things that we historically do is decide whether people are alive or they're dead. Uh, it's a core part of, of our job. And the idea that you know we would need permission to feel for a pulse just sort of seems ridiculous. And yet in the ICU, when we're determining that somebody is dead by neurologic criteria, we need to do this brain death testing, part of which involves the apnea test. And it seems equally wrong that we should have to get consent for that. Uh, then we would have to ask you know the family for permission to feel for a pulse. Uh, so that's you know that's one view. Let me just you know, say what the other view is. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, is that, um, you know, when we're, when we're facing this situation, we have a patient with a very severe brain injury, but we don't know yet that they're dead. And so we have to presume that they're alive. And what the apnea test involves is turning the uh, rate on the ventilator to zero and allowing the patient's carbon dioxide level to rise to a PCO2 of 60 or more you know, 40 is normal, so 60 is pretty high, um, and showing that they don't have any spontaneous respiration with this very powerful drive to breathe. And what 
people will say is that in fact, on the presumption that this patient is alive, allowing that PCO2 to go that high could be very, very dangerous, even fatal for the patient. You know, you can imagine if, if somehow the patient accidentally became disconnected from the ventilator before you did the test and the PCO2 went up to 60, that would be a serious medical error. And um, that kind of increase in PCO2 can cause increased brain swelling and it can actually result in the death of the patient. So for those people, they're saying, you know, gosh, not only do you need consent, but maybe even consent isn't, isn't enough. I mean, even with consent, should you be doing a test that's so risky on somebody that is presumptively still alive? Yeah. And I would just push back on that argument a little bit by saying we have patients who have a PCO2 of 60 and much higher, many, 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 many times in the ICU. And they're both hemodynamically and often neurologically entirely stable. Now, this is unique because maybe that, that small shift makes a difference. But in reality, a PCO2 of 60 is something that adults, and I'm talking adults, and I know you talk kids, but lots of adults run around with the PCO2 of 60 all the time. And tolerate it just fine. So I do think that- Well, let me, let me push back just a little bit there because <laughs> I don't think we're talking about patients with acute brain injury. For those patients, we, we keep a very tight rein on, on the PCO2 between 35 and 40. And it's a, it's a core part of what we do for patients with acute brain injury. We're not talking about somebody with COPD here. So um, true, <laughs> that's but how I would, I would say we're not leaving them there for a really long time. We do it transiently. And in this situation, we're usually not doing it as soon as we know they have brain injury, but somewhere downstream from that, right? This is not just in the very acute setting. And, and we do hyperventilate people in the very acute setting, but this is not that picture. This is further down the, down the road. So I, I agree with you. There's some theoretical risk, but I also think that that could be overstated in terms of the risk for patients. But I'm going to come back no, to this. Good. You and I can okay. debate, we could debate apnea for a long time. And I know that, that maybe there's more to this question though. And I think I said, I think maybe the real thing to debate here is, do we need to get consent in general before we move forward with this type of assessment of calling someone dead based on neurologic criteria, as opposed to all the other times that we pronounce somebody dead. And I'm curious your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think, I think that this issue about uh, consent for apnea testing is really a proxy for this more fundamental question, which is when we diagnose somebody as brain dead, are they dead in the way that we normally think about death? Mm -hmm. And historically, if we go back to 1981, when the Uniform Anatomic uh, Death Act was, was, uh, was created, it was considered kind of a moot point. It was thought that brain death was pretty much functionally equivalent to cardiorespiratory death in the sense that when you had somebody with a very severe brain injury at that time, such that they were diagnosed as brain dead, you could try as hard as you might with the best ICU care available at the time, and they would not survive for more than a couple of days. Right. Uh, the idea was that the brain was sort of command central for the body. When the brain's gone, the body just disintegrates. And it was true at that time. And so they were thought to be functionally equivalent. But what's, what's happened over the last several decades is that we now know that that's not true. And that what has happened is that with better ICU care, if you have a patient who meets brain death criteria, but you keep them on the ventilator for two or maybe three weeks, they stabilize many times, not always, but especially in children who don't have a lot of the comorbidities that adults do. 
they they stabilize. I mean, even to the point that they can go home on a ventilator. Um, and so this whole idea that brain death is always associated with cardiorespiratory arrest just isn't the case. They can live for, for days, for weeks, even for years. The longest case is over 20 years. And so this, this sort of realization of this problem and how we thought about brain death has been evolving over the last several decades. And then it really came to a head with the case of Jaheim McMath. Um, and that was really because of social media. But this was a teenage girl who was uh, diagnosed as brain dead after a post-operative hemorrhage in California. And her parents rejected that diagnosis. And she was transferred to New Jersey where they have a, an exemption for diagnosis of death by, by neurologic criteria. And she went on to live for almost another five years. Some in the hospital, mostly at home, but now with social media, this became something that everybody knew about. There was a story in the New Yorker, et cetera. And so we're now grappling with the fact that brain death doesn't mean death in that normal way. Yeah. It, means, it means that you're never gonna wake up again, but uh, you know, if the decision is made to stay on a ventilator, you might be able to live for a long time. Yeah, you're never gonna wake up again and you're never gonna breathe on your own again. That's so you're right. gonna require yeah. a ventilator. And, and I think, you and I have talked about this a little bit before. There's some inherent value statement in saying that if you can't breathe on your own and you're never going to wake up again, that that is equivalent to death. And, and that, I think, is a value statement. And that's where I think we get into this more murky, murky waters. And, you know, my opinion is that it would be OK for us as a society to make that value statement and that would make us able to say that this is death. But I think what we're acknowledging is that it's a value statement. I, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I know you're exactly right. That is the, the fundamental change is that what we're saying is that as a, as a society, if you have a very severe brain injury, such as you're never gonna wake up, you're never gonna breathe on your own again, you are legally dead in the United States and we will treat you as if you are dead. And you know, I think many people, maybe even most, don't have much of a problem with that. I certainly don't. If, if I were diagnosed as being in that state, for, by all means, take my organs. You know, at my age, probably not of much use to anybody, but, but certainly <laughs> if you can't do that, if you can't do that, take me off the ventilator. Um, uh, you know, when I have conversations with, with families at the bedside and their child is brain dead, I, as soon as I talk about what that means in terms of never waking up again, for most of them, that's all they need to hear. You know, the idea of whether it's dead or not is sort of irrelevant. If my right. child's never going to wake up, let's let's stop doing this. It's, it's not we're not doing it for any point. Um, but you know, not everybody feels that way, and so this has become you know it's one more of the polarized ways that our society is right now. That for a lot of people, if it's not dead in that really common sense way that all of us understand death, then it really isn't dead, and brain dead patients aren't dead. And that's kind of the more fundamental level at which this whole debate about apnea testing, I think, needs to be placed. Yeah, I think you're right that that's that's getting to the root of the, the debate, really. And uh, I'll just add to what you said. I would say the same thing with adults. Like if you express like this is what life is going to be. That don't even say anything about declaring someone brain dead. People most not all say that would not be a life that mom, dad, sister, brother, child would want to live. But you're absolutely right though. I also have encountered places where that's not the case. So, okay, <laughs> we've, we've agreed and we've disagreed on different parts of this, but I'm gonna ask you one last question. And that is like, 
well, how do we move forward? What do you think are the next steps in kind of this? Because it, this has become a greater tension over the last, I don't know, six or seven years. And I don't think it's going to go away. But maybe someday we won't do organ transplant from humans and maybe it will go away then. But, but now, what do you think are the next steps? I think it's very uncertain, actually. Um, uh, a couple of things. One is that this did rise to the level of an internal national sort of debate. The Uniform Law Commission, which is the, the, the group that makes laws like brain death as, as model legislation for the states, has been debating this now for the last couple of years. And I thought a proposal was going to be ready to go for their annual meeting, which is, is actually this month. But um, there wasn't a consensus. And so it's going to be debated for at least another year. Okay. And I'm not sure that another year of debate is going to be uh, give any different result. So I really don't know where this is going. I, 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 I mean, I'll, uh, I'll say, I think ultimately the solution may be what's going on with transgenic pigs right now. We are seeing dramatic ad advances with genetically altering pigs so that their organs can be used for transplantation. It's not perfect, but we just had somebody who's had a heart for a couple of months uh, yeah. with that. And if that technology develops, then really most of our reasons for diagnosing brain death will go away. And it may functionally disappear as a, as a you know, sort of a medical diagnosis. So maybe that's how it will all go. I'm not sure otherwise. I'm not sure there's going to be an answer to this debate any more than there is an answer to many of the uh, really fundamental debates that are going on in our country right now. Well, I appreciate that perspective, though it kind of saddens me a little bit. I, I tend to agree with you. And I'm going to say, yeah, the optimistic thing is maybe we get to a place where we don't need to do this at all. I'm going to guess that that's not going to happen that quickly, though. So it may be that we have to invite you back for another discussion on this podcast <laughs> so we can see how this evolves over time. I really appreciate kind of talking this through with you. It's been really um, thought provoking for me and interesting to kind of pause and think about what are the fundamental questions here? Well, great. Well, thank, thank you, Trish. Thank you, Joe. Uh, it was a really opp wonderful opportunity to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Uh, Critic and Dr. Trug, for this uh, important discussion. And we hope that it will help clinicians sort through these problems. That was our 292nd edition. All the others are available free on podcasts.jwatch.org. We come to you from the writers and editors of NEJM Group. Our executive producer is Kristen Kelly, and I'm Joe Elia. Thank you for listening.